Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. This morning, we're going to continue in our series from the book of Colossians that we've titled Made for More. In fact, in preparation, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. If you don't have your Bible with you, we will have it on the screen and you can follow along all the scripture references behind me. Colossians, like many of the New Testament books, is a letter, or in biblical terms, an epistle uh, written by the Apostle Paul to this particular church in Colossae. And, and the purpose for him writing this letter was to not just encourage the church, but to help keep them rooted in Christ Jesus. Because as I've said from starting last week, he's all we need. Jesus is all that we need in our walk with the Lord. See, the church in Colossae was no different from any of the other early New Testament churches in that they were all new. Paul understood this. In addition, these churches were the very foundation upon which Christ would build his worldwide church, of which we are a part of now. But like anything new, when you have no tradition and you have no history, you are in fact establishing history and tradition every single day as you move forward. In our day, we have the written Word of God in the form of the New Testament for us to adhere to, for us to use as our template with which to follow, but all of their experiences were new and they were groundbreaking. So Paul's epistles are, are full of instruction and direction and, and also warning so that while breaking ground, they will do so in a theologically correct way. And these letters make up a great deal of the New Testament that we now have the benefit of being able to study anytime we desire. So the Apostle Paul understands that like with anything new, anything groundbreaking, there can and there will be difficulties. In fact, anytime human beings are involved in anything, difficulties will no, long, no doubt exist. Let's face it, it's in our DNA. Because people often get misdirected and they allow themselves to be influenced by the wrong things. And in these new churches, some people were developing new theologies, many of which were just plain wrong. And so Paul is doing his level best to, to try to keep this church as well as the other New Testament churches grounded in Christ. He is warning them to stay away from false doctrine, which is slowly seeping into the church, which you will see as you read the, the New Testament. So today we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. You can follow along with me. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. He writes, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a good life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there are two sections in this passage that we're going to take a look at today. First will be verses 9 through 11, where Paul is asking God to do a work in this church this church in Colossae, and he's going to list what he wants to see God do in the form of a prayer. And then in the second section, he's going to give thanks to God for what he has already done in the lives of the people of this church. And I want to start by talking about why. When Paul has open season to ask God to do anything in this church in Colossae, why is it that he's saying, God, I'm asking you to fill the believers of this church with the knowledge of your will. I'm asking you to help these believers to live a worthy life. I'm asking that rather than sitting around and doing nothing, that these believers will bear fruit. And I'm going to pray that this is what you will do, God. And I'm going to pray that all of them will become strengthened believers who develop 
an enduring spirit. You gotta understand, Paul could have prayed anything in this scripture. So why does he narrow it down to these four specific things? Well, I think a little bit of context will help you to understand why he prayed what he did. There was a false doctrine that was creeping into the church in Colossae. It was known as the Colossian heresy. Last week, I told you about one of the false doctrines brought from a group called the Gnostics. Gnosticism was creeping into the New Testament church. In fact, you will find John also addressing it in the book of 1 John. And while the Colossian heresy was a little less defined than just one particular form of, of, of heresy, the threat of it is what motivated Paul to not just to write this letter, but to actually shape the content of the letter in terms of the prayer inside of it. Again, this Colossian heresy was not a single great white shark with huge teeth kind of a heresy that was going on. It was more like a collection of a bunch of little pesky fish with lots of sharp teeth that would go around nibbling at the members of that church. There were these really odd beliefs that were going on, and Paul knew that it was creating problems. As an example, one of them was that, that Jesus the second person in the Trinity wasn't all that involved in the creation of the world. The Trinity just wasn't looked at properly by some of the folks in that church. There was also this weird idea that some people in the church had an exclusive kind of knowledge that wasn't available to some of the other people in the church, and that didn't in any way contribute to developing any kind of unity. There were also some lifestyle questions that had come up as well. There was a faction in the church who believed to prove their spirituality. They had to deny themselves of things that Christians ought to be able to enjoy. So they limited their diets. They, they decided not to go to certain kind of, of wedding feasts. And there was even certain fashion rules. They were becoming very legalistic. And at the same time, there was another group in the church that went in the total opposite direction. They said, what, it's what we believe in our minds that really matters, so therefore what we do with our bodies really doesn't. And that developed into all kinds of sexual perversions that were creeping in as well. Now you throw in another group who was doing a little bit of angel worship, and another group that was terrified that there were demons on behind every tree and behind every rock, and you mix all of that together, and you get a church that had a really good start and an accepting heart that is off to a pretty good start, but then they desperately need some kind of theological clarity. They need some guidelines for effective Christian living. They need a direction to get these special interest groups off of all their little tangents and directed back toward being grounded in Christ Jesus. Why? Because as I've said, Jesus is enough. And Paul wants them to know what, that, that they were in fact made for more, so much more than they were currently experiencing or could ever hope to experience through all of this false theology that was coming in. And you know, this is really nothing new. This kind of thing has been going on since the very beginning, and it continues today. There are churches out there that are doing some pretty crazy things, things that you'll never find in the Bible, off-base stuff that does not align with Scripture. Somebody someday got off-centered on some kind of a theological idea, they ran with it, and then they separated from a body of believers, and they started another. In the United States, you see a lot of that happening. People starting home churches all the time, and you'll often find those who start these home gatherings have some interesting theology. And what's noteworthy about, the, about bad theology is that there is always a measure of some truth to it. But things get added to, and things get taken away to dilute the true word of God, and then things don't line up with scripture at all. This particular church, like so many, had such great potential, and yet they had some impending challenges. So Paul starts with these words in verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul is saying instead of competing with each other, instead of addressing that little group that had this special kind of knowledge thing going on, instead of competing and trying to be the spiritual 
uh, juggernaut in the congregation or the theological answer man or the, or the one who always won the, spirit, the, the scripture trivia contest. Instead of getting caught, all caught up in this knowledge for knowledge's sake, here's what I want to see happen. I want every one of you, this is his point number one, I want every one of you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. There is a huge difference between knowledge of God and knowledge of God's will. I know a lot of people who know a lot of things about God, but they seemingly don't give any consideration to God's will. And what Paul is saying here is that God's will matters. God has a will for this world. Did you know that? You should be, you should be full of it. Do you know that what God's will for this world is? God's will for this world is that hatred and violence and, and, and corruption would cease. God's will for this world is that we would love one another. God's will for this world is that those of us who have more would feed those that have less. God's will for this world is that there would be unity among those in his church. God's will for, for lost people is that they would be found and that none should perish. God's will for this church is that the church would prevail everywhere in all corners of the world. And God has a will for the poor and for the oppressed, that they would be set free and that they would be fed. And God has a will for your and my individual life as well. So Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in the world and in the church and for the poor. And I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will for your personal life as well. And he says, if you would do that, and if you would choose to cooperate with, with God in this, can you imagine what could not only happen to you personally, but what could happen to this church in Colossae or this church in Red Bluff, California, for that matter? I was thinking about this for our church. What would happen if every single man and woman in this congregation, old or young, were filled up with the working knowledge of God's will for this world? And furthermore, that we would participate in events and ministry and activities that would serve the purposes of God in this world and in our community. And what if all of us knew what God's plan was for our personal lives and we were committed to it 100%? What would that look like? Well, I'm telling you, it would look like a pretty incredible church. Paul says to the church in Colossae, I want you to be a phenomenal church. Not just a church that sits around and competes about knowledge about God, but more importantly, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in this world and for your personal life. Well, then he moves on to the second thing that he says in verse 10 about his prayers for them. And this is his second, so that you may, and here's the second point, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Understand, Paul is praying this against the backdrop of all of these lifestyle debates that were going on within that church. I mean, one group was saying we can't do anything. We got we to gotta be real strict in order to prove our spirituality. While another group was saying it doesn't matter how you live. It's what you think. So Paul is, is clearly stating a simple truth here. Live a worthy life. Let's cut out all the man-made rules. Let's, let's look at the life of Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus, let's look at the lifestyle choices that he made. And let's simply imitate our Lord. And I'm telling you, in my opinion, a huge percentage of Christian lifestyle issues could be completely resolved overnight if we would just live out this second prayer. If we lived a life that was worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we walked as he walked and literally lived out all of what those popular bracelets used to say back in the 70s, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What if before we did anything and we opened our mouths or we did any kind of activity, we asked ourselves, oh, my bracelet says, what would Jesus do? Okay, what would Jesus do? That's what I'm gonna do. What a difference that would make. Well, the third thing that Paul prayed for is also in the second half of verse 10, that they would be bearing fruit in every good work. So number three, Paul is saying, I want you to bear fruit. And while bearing fruit, look what it says in verse 10. You'll be growing in the knowledge of God. He's saying that in the doing 
and in the bearing of fruit, you will be growing in your knowledge of God. This is a little counterintuitive. I understand that because many people think that you first grow in the knowledge of God and then that's going to allow you to bear fruit. But Paul says, when you in fact bear fruit, you are going to grow as a result of that. Many people have not gotten into the game. They've not stepped out of their, their comfort zone by participating in ministry in any way, shape, or form. Never an effort to bear any kind of fruit because they say things like, well, I just don't have enough knowledge. I'm just not sure what I'd say. I'm just not sure what I'd do. You know, before you became a Christian, there were many influences that brought you to Christ Jesus. There were, there were many little stepping stones. You may not even remember them, but things happened. People got into your life, got into your head, got into your spirit, and, and there, was a, there was a chain link of different things that happened that brought you to the Lord. Maybe someone invited you to church, or like my wife, a woman that she worked with gave her a Bible and told her specifically what she wanted her to read. Or, or maybe they prayed for you. Or maybe you were just amazed at watching their God-honoring life and how they lived, and you kind of scratched your head and said, man, I want to live that way. What does this guy or this girl have that I don't have? Whatever those influences were, whatever it was that put your eyes upon Jesus, eventually you crossed that line of faith. And you accepted him as Lord and Savior. You received the gift of salvation, the free gift. And, and you then became even more convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. That truly he is the name above all names. And you became uh, aware of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you started to develop a new way of living, a new heart, a new kind of a lifestyle. And things are happening in your life now. But guess what? As we've learned time after time after time, it's not without its challenges. I had a question posed to me by a new Christian who was dealing with some challenges, and it kind of went like this. He said, Pastor David, if I'm saved, and if I have the promise of heaven before me, why doesn't God just take me there now? Why doesn't he just put me on an express lane to heaven and take care of it right now? Well, let me help you with that question in case you've ever had it bouncing around in your own cranium. In Ephesians 2.10, it says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I know this may sound a bit harsh, so let me say this with as much finesse as I know how to. The reason that you're still walking this earth today, the reason that you are still sucking in air into your lungs is because there's a whole bunch of fruit that God has in mind for you and for I yet to do. That's why you're still here and that's why I'm still here. As a believer in Christ, we are not just supposed to take up space on this planet. We exist to do the will of the Father. Here's the thing Paul is saying. If you would understand that you are to go out and to, and to do good, to bear fruit, to make a difference wherever you are, if you were willing to do that, every one of us would grow up spiritually. You see, fruit bearing and spiritual development are intricately bound to each other. In addition, fruit bearing and joy are also bound together. They just are. And if you've never understood this, it's probably because you haven't produced a whole lot of fruit in your Christian life yet. But the point is, you can. Everyone in this room can. People have often asked me, why am I not growing in my faith? I, you know, I, I, I read my Bible sometimes. I come to church every week. Why am I not growing spiritually? The answer is simple. The answer is you're taking in but you're not pouring out. You're taking in all this information. You're learning the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is, is working inside of you, but you're not letting any of it out. God is filling you with His goodness and with His grace and His mercy and His power, but you're hoarding it to yourself. You see, God intended that everything that you have received from Him that was freely given to you, that you would turn around and freely give it to others. When you exercise your spiritual muscles and become a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ through bearing fruit, you will mature in your faith. I guarantee it. And you will also experience joy in your life. Fruit bearing, spiritual growth, and joy cannot be separated. They just cannot. 
Well, then the final thing Paul says here at the end of verse 10, and this is his fourth point, growing in the knowledge of God. And then he goes on to verse 11 to say, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul is saying, I want you to be a strong people. I want you to develop endurance. I like what it says in verse 11, being strengthened with all power. And here's the little clincher phrase here, according to his glorious might. He doesn't say buck up. He doesn't say stop complaining. He says life is hard. We know that. But there's a glorious might. There is a supernatural strength that is available for the human condition. It is available to you, believer in Jesus. Some of you may remember when I came here to receive your vote to be your next senior pastor, which, believe it or not, will be eight years this fall. I can't believe that. But, well, thank you. That was nice. On that Sunday morning, I took out my smartphone. I don't know if you, who of you were here. And if you remember, I took a picture of each one of the sections of this auditorium. I wanted a photographic memory of that moment because I didn't know at that point if I was going to be your pastor or not. But it was a nice experience, and I wanted to share that experience with my fellow pastors back at Phoenix First Assembly. Well, I was looking at those pictures while I prepared this sermon this week. And uh, I noticed that there were faces in that congregation that Sunday that aren't here any longer. But the good news is, there are a lot of new faces in here that weren't in that crowd on that Sunday either. But here's my point. If I took a snapshot today, August 23rd, 2020, in this COVID-restricted congregation here at High Point Assembly, and if somehow I could work my way through the lens of that camera that is filming me and putting me online into homes all over, if I could somehow go through that line and take snapshots of all of those families and all of those homes and all of those people who are watching this service right now, my question to you is this. In five years, if I was able to retake those pictures again under the same situations, would you still be in that picture? Would you have persevered? Would you have had staying power? If you are going to endure what the world is going to throw at you, can you handle it over the next five years should the Lord tarry? Will you still be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, guys, here is the truth. The minute that you accept Jesus, you committed your life to him, all of the principalities and powers of darkness came against you to try to defeat you. They will do everything in their power, and I might say limited power, to try to discourage you. Because remember, you never, never put Satan and God on the same level. You have God here who created Satan. He is a created being. He is not on the same par with God. I get so tired of hearing believers talk about how these guys are equal. They are not equal at all. So they're going to do everything in their limited power to try to destroy you. Jesus himself said that Satan, our enemy, comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. There is a focused power of evil that is aimed against you to try to defeat you and to try to take you out of the game so that you're not bearing fruit, so that you're not living a life worthy of Jesus Christ or giving honor to God or going about doing his will. See, Paul is not naive about evil at all. And so he says, here's what I'm going to pray, that you would become a strong people, that you would ask this, for this glorious might that is available to you and that you will draw from it and that you will be strengthened by it. And then when trials come, and we know that trials will come, and when the tribulations come, not just from outside of the church, not just at work, and what I mean by that is some of the tribulations that you might uh, have to deal with or experience come from inside the church. But when those things happen, you'll be strengthened. You'll be strengthened in such a way to deal with them with the right heart and with the right perspective. You see, the church is made up of sinners like me and made up of sinners like you. Every one of us does some good, but we also create trouble. 
and we're trying our best to beautify the bride of Christ. But on this side of heaven, we're not always going to get it right. And at times, we get wounded by each other, by a look or by something that somebody says or an attitude that somebody takes. People are going to let you down. And then what happens is we start to carry an offense around with us. A ministry that was, that was going real good loses steam. And people start pointing fingers. A marriage falls apart. Someone sins in a big way. There's a misunderstanding. There are accidents and injuries and heartbreaks and all of that. But Paul says, he says, this stuff is going to happen inside the church, outside of the church. And my prayer is that you will be strengthened according to God's glorious might and that you will endure. You know, when you look at Paul's life, you find out real quickly and how he served the Lord. You find out real quickly this reoccurring theme that meant a whole lot to him. And I mentioned it earlier in the opening statements. It's perseverance. Perseverance was huge to the Apostle Paul. He was always trying to fire people up to endure. In fact, some of his last words that he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He said, maybe I've made some mistakes along the way, but I made it to the end without being defeated by all of that stuff that was thrown at me. And if you will recall, there was a whole lot that had been thrown at the Apostle Paul. You remember the shipwreck? You remember the beatings? You remember the imprisonment? The ridicule? The embarrassment? And he simply says, I made it to the end. Because Paul had a really good grasp on this one truth. That when he and when you and I arrive to our heavenly home, the first thing we're going to see is the face of Jesus. And at that moment, we're going to be looking into the eyes of someone who finished his earthly mission. And he didn't just finish it, but he did it at an unbelievable cost. And so you're, you're going to be looking into the eyes of Christ when you get to heaven. And you're going to be able to say, I was inspired by the perseverance of your mission. So I finished mine, Jesus. We persevered together. So perseverance was, was highly important to the Apostle Paul. And it's got to be highly important to us here today in the 21st century church. And just a side note this morning. I want to point out a phenomenon that I have seen go on in the church my entire life. People who come and go. Someone will faithfully attend a church, and then all of a sudden they drop out of sight, no warning, no words, they just kind of gone without a trace. But eventually, they do surface again. And when you talk with them, and you ask them where they've been, their stories are very interesting. They will generally tell you a great story of, of redemption and how God saved them from some pretty crazy stuff and how they're growing in their faith. But then that word always pops up, but. But when our, when our Bible study or our small group ended, I started to drift. I was a part of that team that did this such and such project. But after that got done, it started to happen. I felt a letdown. I, uh, I got too busy at work. I couldn't come to church anymore. I was doing great, but then someone rubbed me the wrong way and I got irritated at them and I, and I held on to that irritation. And the, but the conversation turns on a dime when they say, but I'm back now. And when they say that, I say, well, I congratulate them. I say, welcome home. You're, you're always welcome here. Yay God, yay you and all that. But when, when you ask them, what did you learn through that process? Sometimes they, they can't quite articulate it. But I'll tell you what they learned in very difficult terms, that it never pays to drift. It never does. It's one of the schemes of the devil. If he can get you to just drift 5, 10, 15 degrees off of your course, soon you're going to be drifting far enough away that you're in his domain. But there's always a price to be paid 
whenever you drift away from your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to us and to that church in Colossae, don't pay that price. Better to pay the price of, in, of, of in, endurance than to pay the price of, of the consequences that come when you drift away from your faith because the two do not at all compare. Well, that is the first part of that scripture reference that I read to you when we opened up this, or when we opened up this, this sermon. The prayer of Paul from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. But I also want to look at the second part of that scripture because there are four incredible uh, statements that I want you to see. Paul is now thanking God for what he has already done in the believers in that church in Colossae. And this is one of the richest passages in the New Testament and it needs to be something that is very real to us. It's Colossians 1, 12 through 14. And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now let's take a look at that first little statement or phrase for a second. He says, He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. God has qualified you through Christ Jesus. That's a kind of our, our archaic way of saying to all the new believers at this church in Colossae, do you know what? The kingdom began with the chosen people, the Jews. And early on for a while, if you were going to come into the kingdom of God, you'd likely have to start out as a Jewish person but not anymore because Christ came and he changed all of that and he came to save all mankind, Jew and Gentile, a good person, bad person. He came to save us all. You are now in the kingdom of God. You are in the kingdom of the saints. He says you are in the kingdom of light and you didn't get into this kingdom by earning it or by meriting it or by increasing your performance you didn't qualify yourself. That's not what happened. You're in the kingdom because God qualified you. Someone once posted a question that went like this. If you ever wind up in heaven by a, a stroke of good fortune, how do you think you would have gotten there? Nine out of ten people responded, well, I would have earned my way. I would have done enough good things. I would have pleased God enough to get me there. And when I hear people using that kind of language, I realize they have no grasp of the true gospel message. There's an old saying that says, if you ever find a turtle on top of a fence post, you know someone put him there. Well, let me tell you something. You see a sinner like me, heaven bound, somebody had to put me there. That's the truth about me in a nutshell. I was qualified. You see, when you wind up in heaven, when I wind up in heaven, we're going to be there, not because of anything we've done. We're going to be there because we were qualified by Christ Jesus. The second phrase in verse 13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Fellow Christians, people of high point, people watching online that don't even know me, Christ has rescued you. We all needed to be rescued. We were all a mess. We were all in trouble, as is every human being that is stuck deep in their humanity. We all needed rescue. Back in 1998, there occurred one of the most incredible rescue missions probably ever caught on film. In the sailboat racing circuit, this is where the rich people, the sports the rich people watch. You probably have never watched it, but anyway, and I'm not rich, I'm just aware of this story. There's an annual race called the Sydney Hobart Race. It runs about 650 miles from Sydney, Australia to Hobart, Tanzania. It's one of the most dangerous sailboating races of the circuit. It happens every year around Christmas because, as you know, it's summertime in Australia in that part of the country while we're freezing up here in the wintertime. And it is often interrupted by storms and high winds. Well, back in 98, there was this enormous storm that hit in the middle of that race. There were winds that were clocked at 120 miles an hour at times. There were 75-foot waves, and they just destroyed a bunch of these race boats. 
And sadly, several sailors had died, but even more had been swept off of their boats and they're floating out there helplessly in those high waves. They thought they were going to die. Well, back on the land, some helicopter pilots hear about this. And on their own initiative, they fueled up any available helicopter, brought a partner, and they went out. Keep in mind that the sky is pitch black, high winds blowing everywhere, searchlights and cables were being dropped out of these helicopters, and they were plucking these sailors out of the water at 2 a.m. in the morning. The danger factor, they say, of that rescue mission was almost incalculable. It made absolutely no sense that anybody would even think of going out and trying to do that. In the end, they showed video footage of these sailors that had been rescued, having dinner with the helicopter pilots and their helpers. And what a scene it was because every, every sailor was just hugging these guys saying, I was certain I was going to die. I, my life passed before my eyes. I was taking in my last gulp of, 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 of air. But you guys came along in these dark, treacherous waves that were, and winds that were surrounding us. And I want you to understand, I use this as an example because I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. We are all in the kingdom of darkness. We live in this world. We were all in the dominion of darkness at one time. And we could not rescue ourselves. We couldn't possibly rescue ourselves. And the only reason any of us wound up safe and sound and secure today is because Christ rescued us from this dominion of darkness. He has rescued you from being held in the, the blackness and the darkness of that raging sea. That is a picture of having been rescued, and it's a very powerful one. And if you feel like you've never been rescued in your life before, I'm here to tell you, you can be rescued today. You could be qualified. You could be rescued by a simple prayer of openness and dependence upon God. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that at the end of the service. Well, there's a third phrase that I think is powerful. It's located in the second half of verse 13, that Christ has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Some translations say transferred. He has transferred you. Here's the idea. Doesn't mean much in our day, but it sure meant a lot in their day. When there was a military conflict, the losing army had to surrender or they'd be slaughtered because there was no Geneva Convention back in those days. So the victim, victors would often relocate the vanquished enemy to a new place where they wanted them to live. And this uh, relocation was a public spectacle. The troops would have to go back to their homes, the surviving troops. They would pack up all of their stuff. They would pack up their wives and their children, and they would be led via parade style, the whole group of them, the whole vanquished army and their families and their children in this kind of a parade of shame. They would relocate them in a very public way to a place that probably wasn't that good, but it was a place where they could keep their eye on them and watch over them to make sure that they would not uprise again. So what Paul is saying here to us today is using some very creative imagery that Jesus Christ has won the battle over evil. He is the victor. He's going to do what all victors do. He's going to transfer you. He's going to take you out of the worst place possible, the, the, the dominion of darkness, and he's not going to re relocate you to a worse place. He's relocating you to a better place, into the kingdom, to the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So those of you who have been redeemed and accepted Jesus' free gift of salvation, you've all been transferred. And get this. Every single angel in heaven was cheering you on at the moment that you got saved because that's one thing that the angels will never experience. All of heaven watched as you were transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You and I have been re relocated. Can you say amen? Well, then there's one last phrase I want to show you in verse 14 in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here's the idea with another story. You were bought with a price. You know, on the continent of Africa, like most places in the world, there's a lot of horrible things going on. Years ago, there was a civil war going on in the Sudan, and actually variations and versions of that civil war are still going on today. 
But back then, one of the warring factions got this idea, a new strategy. They would go in the middle of the night into enemy territory. They would attack a village. They would kill as many of the men as they could. And then they would drag the women and the children off to a kind of slavery that would be very difficult for me to describe to you today. But it was a kind of slavery that destroys your soul. And I think you get the drift of what I'm talking about. Well, some peace-loving fired up American Christians and European Christians got together and they decided that they were going to go meet with these warring factions, even at the risk of their own life. So they met with them and they said, we don't want to get involved in your civil war, but would you allow us to start buying back these women and kids that you have been abusing so horribly? Would you allow us to buy those women and children at a price? And the leaders said, yeah, we, we would do that. Do you know what they, the established price was for a child or a mother from this, this faction, this uh, warring faction? 33 American dollars. That was what a human life was worth to these men, 33 bucks. And so these Christians went back to their areas and they started fundraising and they'd take that money and they would exchange it into currency that these factions could use. They'd go out in the middle of the desert late at night and they'd say, here, we've got enough money to buy 57 of these, these slaves that you have. Here it is. And then they would take these people back and they would redeem them. Can you imagine what those women and those children must have felt like? Someone that they didn't even know bought them for a price, relieved them, from the suffering and a hideous future. And what Paul is saying when he uses this term to us this morning is very simple. You know what? He says, you folks have to understand, you weren't just qualified. You weren't just rescued and transferred, but, but you were redeemed. You were bought for a price. It was a lot more costly than 33 bucks. You were paid for by the ultimate price, the shed blood and the pierced body of God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So consider yourself bought. Consider yourself redeemed forever. You know something, the imagery of these four phrases in Paul's letter really got my attention this week. And last week when I asked you to meditate on the, this book of Colossians and, and to try to memorize these scriptures and to try to get them into your heart and in your spirit and make them your very own. This is what I'm talking about here. This, of course, is a paraphrased version of this scripture, but let me get it into your spirit today. You have been qualified. You have been rescued. You have been transferred. And you have been redeemed. You are safe. You are relocated. And you are released from your sins through Jesus Christ, lest you have forgotten. So quit trying to, to, to make the truth of the gospel to fit into your limited human understanding that's surrounded by all of your fear and all of your doubts and all of your twisted man-made theology that we all get into our heads. Quit doubting who you are in Christ Jesus. That's what I wanted to say to you this morning. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? One way I hope to help you with this this morning is by getting you to speak it out loud. In fact, why don't you stand to your feet with me if you would. I want all of you in this place to repeat after me, full voice, loud and clear. Don't hold back. Repeat these words after me. I have been qualified. I have been rescued. I have been transferred. I have been redeemed. You need to understand that, guys. You need to be secure in that today. And that's the message that we are to proclaim to this broken and jacked up world that we're living in right now. We need to go up to people and we need to say, you know what? You too can be qualified. You too can be rescued. You too can be transferred and redeemed through Jesus Christ. In other words, like I said to you last week, Christ is enough. Christ is the answer. And he has so much more in store for you than this world or poor theology could ever bring. What Paul prayed for, for this church of Colossae, is exactly what God desires from every one of us in this room today. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will. To live a life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to bear fruit and to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And if you feel like you're falling short in any of these areas today, well, don't feel so bad. Because I think a lot of people feel that way. I just want to say to you this morning, and I want to encourage you, sometimes you've got to get up and you've got to flex your spiritual muscles. Sometimes you've got to exercise your faith. I'm telling you, I think for the last six months we've fallen asleep. We've gotten so comfortable sitting in our homes and watching church on TV and, 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 and not being engaged in, in all the things we've been engaged in, and we've gotten lazy. We've forgotten what we were called to do. We've forgotten that God has given us a mission. And, and, and instead of being fearful of everything that's going on right now, we should stand boldly and proclaim the gospel message. Because you remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, recent surveys have showed people are searching. People are looking for the answer. And you've got the answer. You've got the solution to all the world's problems. Does it mean there's, not, there's going to be problems in your life? No, you still have problems. The difference is when you have struggles and you have issues, you've got the Spirit of God in you that allows you to manage those things in a way that the world cannot, that the world knows nothing of. There comes a time when every single one of us needs to give up some of our precious time and some of our precious attention and some of our precious resources. And we need to start taking some risks, not in our finances, not in our investments. We need to take some risks in kingdom-involved things, in God's kingdom. When you do, when you make him your highest priority, that's when you will grow. That is when you will find joy. One thing that I've learned about the Christian walk is we were never meant to live off of yesterday's glory. We were never meant to talk about the good old days. We were meant to talk about what God is doing in our life right now. We cannot live off of yesterday's glory. The Bible says that God's, God's mercies are new every single day, as well as his, 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 his infilling, as well as his strength, as well as his power. All of that stuff is new to us every single day. I'm here to tell you that if you... you dwell on these things, if you make them a part of your Christian life, you will come to new levels of faith, new levels of trust, and new levels of boldness in your walk with Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants from each and every one of us. I never like to end a service without giving people an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. So if it is your desire, if it is your desire to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, to be worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you to bear fruit and to grow in your knowledge of God. I want to pray for you. And by the way, this altar is always open. I haven't said that much in the last few weeks. I'm sorry, I forget to say certain things. We're down to two services and we're in a much tighter time frame. And I can't just ramble on like I used to. I've got to make things more short and concise. This altar is always open. You can come down here and you can pray anytime, just like it's always been. But if you're here today, or if you're watching online and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you've never received salvation through Christ, you can do so today. The Bible says, in order to be saved, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that he is the only way to the Father. And through his shed blood, your sin can be washed clean. You just need to pray, pray a prayer and say, I believe that. That's the confession part. And God hears those words. The Bible says that he is, he is faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you can start a new kind of a life. A life that is focused on doing these things that we've talked about this morning. Because I guarantee you, if you do, it will be a life of growth and it will be a life of joy. Can we all bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for letters that were written thousands of years ago that are as real today as they were the day that they were written. And though the times have changed, and though technology has changed, Lord, the human spirit and the human condition is the same. We're messed up people that are in need of redemption. And so, Father, I pray for anyone who's watching or in this building today who does not know you, that they would have the courage to pray a simple prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he came to save me, and I ask for salvation today. They would have the courage to pray that. 
They would furthermore say, Father, fill me with your spirit. Help me to live a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And Father, for those who are already saved, sometimes we need to repray those words to remind ourselves of exactly what you've done for us. And God, I ask that you would, you would raise up, not just in this body of believers, but in churches all over this city, in churches all over this state, and all over this nation, people who will not just sit on the sidelines and watch the world crumble and not be a part of trying to help, but Father, because we have the answer that we would open our mouths and that we would start dealing with people that we know, relationships that we have, we would ask them where they stand in their life with you and that we would lead them to a, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've commanded that of us all. Father, I pray that it will become very real to us and that we will abide by it and that we will look at those in our family and our friends and those in our circle of relationships and we would look at those who are lost with pity and if it's that pity that drives us, so be it. But whatever drives us, Father, allow us to open our mouths and be conduits of your great love and to make a difference in this world. God, I ask, as I always do, to make us bright lights in a very darkened world, a world that is darker than I think I've ever seen it. So God, as we part our ways today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guide our steps, the places we go, the kind of conversations that we have, the things that we do, Father, that it would honor you and the sacrifice that your son Jesus made for us. And I pray that we would not sit still and sit silent and watch everything fall apart in front of us, but that we would bring hope into all situations, that we would speak life into all situations. And the reason that we are able to do that is because we've experienced Christ. And those who we talk to need to experience him as well. So direct us, Father, to open our mouths and to do what you've called us to do. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for my church family, those that are here, those that are working, watching online. I pray and look forward to the day, Father, where we can gather together again, not bound by restrictions, but freedom to do what we've always done. In the meantime, Father, let us be free in our spirit to do those things you've asked us to do. And I ask these things in the precious and the holy name, of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.